How was the word of God heard by the people when it was first spoken? The time, the place, the political landscape, the struggles. And how does the word of God apply to this time, this place, this political landscape, our struggles? This is Michael Leasley in Context. Understand God's word and apply it to your life. In Context. Well, we are in studio today already having too much fun with my neighbor, friend, brother, namesake, I guess. We're both Michaels. That's Mm kind of dangerous right there. Mike Glenn, you have been the senior pastor at the Brentwood Baptist Church in Brentwood, Tennessee for 29 years. Mm Mm-hmm. You uh, did a big land grab a few years back. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) Built a magnificent facility. Yeah. And then you called me. I still remember this until I die. (laughs) He comes back from sabbatical. And you're going to call his pastor buddy friend and see how old Michael's doing over there in his church. And he calls and says, hey, Easley, guy walked in this morning and handed me a check for $10 million. That's right. We're debt free. (laughs) And like I'm supposed to be, you know, weep with those who weep, but. Rejoice with those who rejoice. That was the hard part of that. That's and, right. Uh, and then I said, well, are you going to tie 10% to uh, us? No. And you said no. 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 <laughs> well, you know, half the fun of something good happening to you is knowing your friends are miserable. <laughs> That's exactly what you said then, too. Yeah. Yeah. So this interview is over. Um, right. <laughs> Mike was the first pastor when we moved to Brentwood in, oh, whatever year it was, 2008, I think December of 2008, physically, 2009 was my job start. And you were the first pastor in Middle Tennessee to reach out and say, hey, take you to lunch. Yeah. And you came and picked me up in your car and took me and actually bought my lunch, which is a rare thing these days. But I don't think you bought one since, just for the record. No, I'm kidding. But anyway, you reached out and you continue to be a friend. And Cindy and I love and appreciate you and Jeannie and your kids. And you guys have been through thick and thin with yeah. your mom and with your brother and with your grandchild. And you got some stripes on your back. Yeah. Mileage. It's not the model year, is it? It's the mileage. <laughs> to get you. But you're older than me. I take comfort in that. Yeah. <laughs> and feel it every day, too. You know, that's the thing. It's just. Uh, well, we're doing a couple of things with Mike in the studio today. First of all, just having some fun. Secondly, we're going to do our 10 questions. And then we're going to talk about his book, mm-hmm. Coffee with Mom. But let's start out with these questions. Number one, first of all, we talk about in context. That's sort of my theme, how do we understand the Bible in the context in which it's written and then apply it to our life. So what I'm asking you then, when you think about your context, obviously you're a pastor in ministry, right. but how do you, if you were to distill it, how do you think about how you carry out your ministry in the context of being a pastor, of being a pastor in a mainline denomination, no less? Right. So there's got to be some unique things on how you navigate those waters. The first thing is Ministry, however you define it, however you do it, comes out of the overflow of Christ in your life. So the, the priority for me, the priority for for any staff, the priority for anybody that I talk to that's in this for the long haul, is to maintain that love for Scripture that you had when you started. The first thing that happens, and you know this, the first thing that happens when you start ministry is they take the Bible away from you. It becomes a tool. And you'll get emails going, here's the new tool for your ministry. It's not tool. It is the word of God. It is the inspired utterance from the heart of God to your heart. And that's why we got into this. Because reading that, experiencing that changed our lives. And we wanted everybody to have that same change. And the first thing the church does is take that away from you. So you have to naivete in the best sense of the word that this is a fresh moment every day Mm. and the ministry comes out of that overflow. Anytime you hear, and gosh, we talk about it all the time, the friends we have, the famous pastors we have who do not finish well. Too many. I guarantee you they forgot that moment. They got so busy that they just lost that moment. Well, you're in a very large, very beautiful, very established ministry with 100, probably 115, 120 ministries. And it's very easy Right. To get pulled into the infrastructure, to admin, to, well, the pastor needs to support this ministry. Right. My favorite line when we were in other churches was, well, we need your support. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? You want me to show up to all your meetings? That's right. Is that what it means? You want me to have a devotional for you every time? And you have to make the announcement. 
And I would tell people, the success of your ministry is not dependent on my announcement. Well, here's the un- uncomfortable part. You and I both know that if you stood up in the pulpit on Sunday and said, the most important thing you could do this week is X, yeah. they will see a tick. Yes. <laughs> so we, we understand that <laughs> yes, power. Right. Yeah. It's perceived power. Mm-hmm. So I understand where they're coming from. But back to your point, if we're not stayed on what we're supposed to be doing, mm-hmm. the foxes, as it were, can nibble away at the vineyard. And before we know it, we're right. admin and burned out. The running test I have for my staff is I will randomly stop them. And you better be able to tell me two things and tell me two things real fast. You ought to be able to tell me where you're reading in Scripture, not what book you're reading. I hope you are a lifelong learner. But nothing replaces Scripture in the life of the believer. You ought to be able to tell me real fast. Second, you ought to be able to tell me what Jesus is teaching you. Our rabbi is alive, and he's promised if you will open up the Scripture, he will meet you in that conversation and he will teach you just like he taught Peter and John. I've said for decades, Mike, that when people get in trouble, whether it's an affair mm-hmm. or money or whatever, it's corollary. They're not in the Word. That's right. They're not in prayer. And they probably don't have, I hate overusing the word accountability, but they don't have Christian brothers and sisters that are walking with them. That are watching. Right. And it sounds so simplistic, but I mean, I know you feel the same way I do on Sunday when people don't bring a Bible. Or, I mean, I'm not anti the phone or the yeah. tablet, but this is a book that's a living document. Mm-hmm. As Howard Hendricks said, God has spoken and he did not stutter. That's right. <laughs> and yet, for whatever reason, it's, oh, by the way, yeah, you know, and used to be we'd see people in their car and they'd have their Bible in the back dashboard. <laughs> that's where it left Sunday. That's right, that's right. <laughs> and, and, and then it'd be all worn yeah, on it, and the pages but, stuck yeah, together. <laughs> and the sun would have bleached it out, so it looked like it was well-loved. But it's, and you and I are the same way, guilt and shame don't motivate people to change. No. But how do you instill in your context a love for your people to say, I love this book. I love the living world. I, when I read it this morning, and Christ does speak to me, and he does confront me, and he does encourage me, how do you transfer that to your folks? Because when you hear the word accountability, when you hear the word discipleship, it's always punitive and negative. Interesting. Rather than Christ is holding you accountable to the best self this dream he has for you. Mm-hmm. That's what he's holding you accountable to. What you're doing, who you are right now, doesn't match who I want you to be. I often ask our people, are you any more like Christ than you were last year? Right. Are you any more like Christ than you were when you came to Christ? Right. Hendricks had a statement, I still remember, it dismantles me. If you were never more ready for salvation the day you were saved, why are you still here? Mm-hmm. Wow. You know, it makes me... I don't know. I'm distracted. I'm interested in these things. Well, you know, I I tell the church all the time, born again is the beginning. It's not where you stop and celebrate. The anticipation is that you're going to grow again. You're born again, then you grow again. New mind, new thoughts, new hearts, new desires. All of those things have to happen. When you look at your own, not church or quote ministry, but your own spiritual journey, what's been your greatest challenge? The way I'm wired is I want to do it on my own, and I don't want anybody to help. Interesting. I want to go do something for Jesus, and I want to take it back and share it with Jesus <laughs> and give him a present. <laughs> this is what I did Are you for looking you. for an attaboy? That's, that's right. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's the way I am. I want I want to, hey, I got it. You told me what to do. I'm going to go do it. Okay. And when I get back, I'm going to give you the present. What you miss out of that is the whole fun of working with. He didn't want me to go do this on my own. Part of it is being with him, serving with him, being part of what he's doing in the ministry and the mission. When you look back, and again, on your personal life, I know for you and me, it's hard to differentiate ministry (laughs) and our, just because, you know, it's what we are, right or wrong. But when you look back, you plan, let's say, let's just talk about a building. You plan a building or you plan a capital program mm-hmm. or you plan a ministry and you have an idea of what that may look like mm-hmm. and you have an idea how you might get there. Sure. Did it ever work out that way? No. <laughs> no. <laughs> Is it any easier yeah. waiting now? <laughs> yeah, I am learning Good. to be a little more patient. And the hard thing is understanding 
that Jesus likes me. Okay? Now, it's news for somebody that Jesus loves them. Okay? I grew up with that third row of the Baptist church. Ever, you know, I know the first, second, fourth verse of every hymn and a hymn book. <laughs> and everybody, Jesus has to love everybody. But you and I know that as pastors, we have to love everybody, but there's only a handful of people that we like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yes. Uh, uh. I and, won't raise my hand, and but for, I, am, I am raising my and hand. And for me to finally understand that Jesus likes me was a profound moment for me. It is interesting that that's one term. We don't have the privilege of calling him, but he calls us his friend. His friend. If. Yeah. We do what he told us to do. It's pretty chilling. I know it's a little kitschy, but do you have a key verse that you go back to? Jeremiah 33, 3. Call to me and I'll answer you and show you great and wondrous things that you know nothing about. Say that again for me because I love it. Call to me and I will answer you and I will show you great and wondrous things that you know nothing about. And if I remember the chronology of that, he's not doing real well in the middle of that. No. No, he's not. It's just... I will answer you with things you don't even know to ask for. Which goes back to the our prior conversation because we might have an idea in mind yeah. for our kids, mm-hmm. for our grandchildren, and it doesn't ever work out that way. It seems to me it's almost like if I plan it, it ain't going to work out that way. <laughs> no, no, it is not. <laughs> this plan is not going to work, but I'm going to show it to you anyway. And as my friend said, that God, what a sense of humor yeah. he has. He must laugh at our foolishness. But okay, after the Bible two or three books that were particularly instrumental in your life? Bonhoeffer's Life Together. That passage where he writes, the pastor has no right to complain to God about his people. God knows the kind of people they are. That's why he sent you. But when the pastor complains, the pastor has given up the role of advocate and now has become the adversary. Interesting. And is now praying against Christ. Force people. So that, yeah, I, let's I, talk I'm shop. still bleeding yeah, in the mouth like from that, that at all. One. Yeah. <laughs> let's talk shop a bit because you and I have churches and I tell young pastors, and of course we're in a young church. We started a church two years ago and I, I tell my partner in crime, I said, we're a real church now. People are coming late <laughs> and we have problem people. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> but at 63 now, I have a lot more patience with people. Right. I couldn't say it as eloquently, but I do love them, even though they may be frustrating at times. I remind myself the ground at Calvary's level. Mike Glenn any better than me, and I'm not any better than Mike Glenn. And when I look at people in the church who are, you know, and I always wonder what the home life is, what hurts they have in life, you know, what disappointments, because we all get those flesh wounds. Well, the reason we don't judge is we're not given permission to judge is we never have the whole story. You know, there's sometimes you walk up somebody and say, well, he should have it together by now. But if you knew the story, where he's come from, the battles he's already won, he'd be your hero. But are not there times when people do need that encouragement? I mean, I I have a friend that as long as I've known him, he's been anxious. Mm Mm-hmm. And years ago, I asked him, I said, have you ever thought about what it would be like to not be anxious? And if Christ is living in your life, is that something you could pray for and perhaps see him? And it, it stopped him in his tracks. Right. He'd never stopped to think, maybe I don't have to wake up with a knot in my stomach. Be anxious for nothing. Nothing. But a person who doesn't worry, that's hard. As you right. said, we don't know the story why they're anxious. But I go back to those imperceptible emotions we have. We work on you know, money, sex, and power goals mm-hmm. where God says, where's your heart? Are right. you anxious? Are you trusting? Are you resting in me in weakness and in strength and in prosperity and in poverty? Do you still trust me? Yeah. Another book, perhaps. Yeah. yeah, I like that. You know, when Jesus asked the disciples in the boat, where's your faith? <laughs> well, yeah. I'm real strong when there's not water out to my knees. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> well, not about drowning. Yeah. 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 yeah I'm good. My lips are turning blue. My favorite guy in that situation is the Mark 9 guy. Lord, I believe, help me in my unbelief. That's one of the most powerful professions of, I want to believe you. I don't have the capacity, which goes back to some of my Augustinian studies, you know, that God even gives us the faith to believe in him. Another book, perhaps, besides Bonhoeffer. (laughs) Divine Conspiracy. Really? Yeah. Well, that's what it's about. What about it? Do you remember some things that were pivotal? 
just his insistence that Jesus is the smartest man to ever live. If nothing else, if you can't say he's the son of God, then you at least have to know that he understands life in a way that nobody else has since. And you would be wise to pay attention to what he says. I love it. Yeah. I have a theory that Adam was the second most brilliant person ever born. Because hmm. he's made in the image of Christ. Sin has not interrupted yeah. things. He had perfect fellowship with God. And, of course, we have the second Adam references in the New Testament. And I often say he was the most brilliant man that ever walked the planet. Take Mozart, Beethoven, oh, uh, yeah. Einstein, put them all together, mm. and Adam would have superseded them. So, yeah, yeah, that's a great insight. What is one of the biggest lessons that you've learned at this point in your life? <laughs> Biggest. Now, see, that's the thing when you have to rank them. Well, yeah, I, know. I hate the question too, but I wrote them. So. Yeah, I got this scar when I did this, and I got this scar okay. when okay. I did that. What is a big lesson? A big, okay. All right. <laughs> the one I talk about with most easily is for two years when I came to Brentwood, I didn't listen. We lost two years because in my arrogance and cockiness, thought I had been sent by God to tell them rather than to listen and draw out what God had already placed there. I wasn't bringing anything to them. God had already placed it. Mm -hmm. The thing I have with this modern understanding of pastors that we go off to the mountain and come back, come with, back a with a vision, rather than be the midwife, you know, Shapira and Mipua, the midwives in Exodus, are celebrated as Moses is, but they didn't need a vision, and they had the courage to take on Pharaoh themselves. And they did two things. They created a safe place for the dream to be born, and they would not let a pagan king define the future of God's people. Mm. And if a pastor can come to his people and sit and listen to the stories, when did God show up here? What do you celebrate? And take those dots, he can draw the line that will show the future. Mm -hmm. If I had sat down and drank coffee and listen, yes. we would have. Of course, you uh, were 29 years old yeah, what, yeah, when you came. 30, so yeah. part of it is growing up. I right. mean, there's no substitute for welts and yeah, lumps. For seasoning, and, and, as yeah, they seasoning, say. <laughs> maturing. Yeah. So part of it. But I would echo the same thing. When I went to Grand Prairie, I was 28. Hannah was six months old, our firstborn daughter. And I knew I didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. I didn't even pretend. But I went to a church culture that I did not understand their backgrounds there, you know, and God's kindness. When we went to Northern Virginia, the first thing I did, cause I was way out of my league in that church is I started going and I wanted to go see where they worked, mm -hmm. the Pentagon, the OEB, the white house, whatever, you know, and go, can I come to your place and I'll buy you lunch. Yeah. Let me see where you work. Wow. Do you get a different perspective on the people that sit in that church service? Right. Mm -hmm. If you see where those folks are Young pastors don't seem to have interest in doing that. Yeah. Well, it's humbling when you sit and realize this guy makes multi-million-dollar deals all week long. And the biggest thing you can do is ask him to come sit. Why? He's, he's yeah, why yeah, should I sit there? I'm not going to do that. Yeah, I look out and just like you do and see certain people there, and I go, I get kind of a cold sweat. Right. <laughs> like, I'm telling that person yes, something right, right now. <laughs> Kind yeah. of frightening. Yeah, yeah, his Rolodex was scary to yes. death. Yes, oh, yeah. gosh. What is one thing you'd long for every believer to know, to do, to apply? That they don't have to earn his love. I think we drive ourselves, especially at North American church. How many stars can I get on my little report card where I can finally be able to cash it in and Jesus will love me? Hmm. I think if we could ever really get in our bones that he loves you just like you are, that you could relax mm. and quit playing games with each other. And no one's worse than this than pastors. <laughs> and, you know, you and I know this. You get a bunch of pastors together in a room, and gosh, it is. <laughs> Everybody's pruning and peacocking uh, and everything else, trying to prove that they're worthy. You know, you and I grew up in a time when ministry and seminary were, I won't say formulaic, but there were men in front of us that we look to and esteemed. Right. And I think it's just different today. These younger men don't have seminary, A, and they don't have the same investment in study and the rigors of that. They have a vision or a call or a passion 
and they want to do their thing. Yeah. And it's an interesting, you know, I don't want to sound hard or unkind, but it's just a very different climate for a church. People will tell you that Baptists don't have bishops, but we do. And every state, there were three or four, older, very successful in all the good terms of that. And if you were a young guy, you would attach yourself to one of those bishops. And if you were visiting their town, going to the hospital or whatever, you'd stop by and have coffee, or, and they would tell you how to pastor. That's where you learned to pastor, was those guys coach yeah. you up. It's different. Yeah. See, it was one of those old guys who told me that when anybody comes in angry at you, nine times out of ten, they're hurt, but they don't know how to tell you. Dennis Rennie taught Cindy and me one of the most valuable practical lessons like that, and he would hold like... I'm holding a book between you and me. Right, yeah. And he would say, when you have an argument with your wife or your husband, you hold the problem mm-hmm. in between you and you argue with each other. Right. Just hold the problem over here like a triangle and you're yeah. looking at the problem. And when you see that, that's a mental picture for me, Mike, right. when I have an angry person, I go, okay, they're angry. They're taking it out on me perhaps, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. How do we identify you know, their wife is, you know, this or that, or the husband's this or that, or, or maybe the church did something that's hurt them. And it also, it, not to sound unkind, but it absolves us right. of being the end of the grounding rod for right. the lightning strike. Right? right. Or having to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not going to fix it, but I'm going to give you a safe place to pull it out, and we're going to look at it. <laughs> See, you're nicer than me. I, <clears throat> my reputation is if you come for counseling, if you're depressed, don't be. Yeah, yeah. Well, so if I say yes, I, you discourage, get I am, uh, when we do the spiritual gifts thing, yeah. I have no mercy, none. It looks like you've colored the bottom of the line. I mean, none. So when people come in, I say, Jesus knew you didn't need mercy. He sent you to somebody else on our team. <laughs> so let's cut to it. <laughs> I have a couple of friends. I call them my wire brush. You know, yeah, I go to them. They don't. I don't. I don't go with the intention. They're going to say, "Oh, Michael." Yeah, I'm a wire brush. Yeah, I got a guy like that. But you need them. The greatest disappointment in your context, whether it was ministry, vocation, Christian community, greatest disappointment. I tell people that I have had to change. I've pastored this four or five different churches at the same address. That is, Brentwood grew each time we went to a new thing. I had to change. So the normal adventure that I would have as a pastor going to another church, learning new skills and all that, I got to have at the same place. But when you go through those transitions, not everybody comes with you. And there are a lot of reasons that that happens. And to lose some of those people that you had counted on in others, those other transitions, and then for them to tell you, I either won't go or can't go with you on this new one. It hurts. Mm-hmm. That hurts. We have a very close mutual friend who made this comment to us not long ago uh, that some of the people early on with him, right. you know, he thought they would be with him to the end. To forever, yeah. And I thought that was so striking because his personality doesn't, you don't think that about him. Right. He's like you, you know, lead, follow, get out of my way. And it's like, wow, that's interesting. That's a common. Right thing for people to be disappointed in. You know, and it's also interesting, the misunderstandings we get in ministry, because back to the, we don't know the whole story of the problem. And I think when you and I, as human clay feet pastors, when things don't go our way, you know, buck up, buddy. That's right. Go back and say, okay, the Lord's God. He's sovereign. I'm not. I'm just a servant. I'm just a, I like that you talked about what was the phrase you midwife? Yeah. I like the term sheepdog. Yeah. I might even say I'm a shepherd. I, I just go yap at the sheep and try to get them back toward the shepherd. I feel like that's a, my role. And if we have to, we will bite you. <laughs> I try not to do that anymore. Yeah. I don't want to go to jail. The greatest encouragement in your context, ministry, vocation, et cetera. What's been a great encouragement? Oh, gosh. Watching one of your friends get it not only in their relationship with Christ, but to understand how they're made and for the purpose for which they were called mm-hmm. and then watching them do things, one, they didn't think they could do, two, you didn't think they could do it, <laughs> and to pull off something rather amazing. Mm-hmm. That is always, you know, right now we have the eight campuses and I get to work with seven other pastors and watching those guys grow into their ministry is a real treat. Well, that's a sidebar, and I was going to derail and ask you a question about that, because when you look at younger pastors, as we've been talking mm-hmm. about, 
you've got this Middle Tennessee initiative where right. you are you're going after these churches that, for all intents and purposes, might be an older building. They might be somewhat the area around them developed transition. Transitioned. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's no one there. There's a handful of people. They're financially in trouble, and you come alongside and say, "We'll come in. We'll take over, quote unquote, but we'll help you." Right. And you've got eight now, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And on track to, for some more. Right. So. You're looking at a different pastor for those. Right. They're not Michael Easley or Mike Glenn that no. went to seminary and did this and that. We try to, you know, I am a sucker for sacred space. I love being in old cathedrals. And old, And now you open our paper and there's churches for sale. Churches that just killed me. And they're being sold by a group of people who are sure no one will come being bought by a group of people who are sure someone will come if there's something different in the building. Well, why can't we be what's different in See, the I building? I thought they were being converted into lofts and lofts, condos and all that. Yeah, <laughs> they are. So they're going to do something different in that space, in that building. People will come. Well, why can't we be what's different? So most of the mm-hmm. time when you talk to somebody who a church is in that position, it's a handful of senior adults who would love for some kind of ministry mm-hmm. to be continued in that space. They don't want to sell it, mm-hmm. but they're out of options. And if you can sit down with them and say, listen, church can happen here. It's going to be different because of who's moved in around you. Yes. So let's do the demographic study. Let's do the community studies. And let's find a missionary who can reach this group, who mm-hmm. speaks this people's mm-hmm. language, who can do that. And that's one of the interesting things that's happening in the church in North America. We're having to be much more missionary in our engagement with culture than we used to be. You say that, but, I mean, back to church programs and Christ's mandate, making disciples has never gone out of fashion or, you know, well, it's gone out of fashion. It's never gone out of theology. But the idea of, you know, pursuing people, encouraging them, in some respects, challenging them, right? Whether that's over a coffee at a you know at a hipster coffee store, or it's some venue that we you know we have all these <laughs> that's another discussion new the, places, but, but, but it's the, still the same. It, yeah, but you're not starting at the same place. You know, when right. I first started, Billy Graham, everybody knew Billy Graham. Everybody was familiar with Billy Graham's phrase, "The Bible says," and there was at least a tip of the cap to the authority of Scripture. This is what the Bible says. Okay, now you have to do a philosophical background on why there is authority and why there is a God and how we know that and how he's revealed himself in Scripture and history and ultimately in Jesus Christ before you can get to the discipling part. Mm-hmm. Hendrix used to say you have to show them they're a sinner before they understand sin. Yeah. That's a delicate job. If you could write a letter to your 18-year-old self, what advice would you give? Be true to yourself. <laughs> I spent One of my favorite stories is David dressing in Saul's armor. And I think a lot of us do that. We're told by somebody, hey, if you're going to do this, you need to do it this way. And it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit any of us. One of my theology professors at Southern Seminary told me, he said, you are a very unique personality on our campus. And I went, oh, great. <laughs> and he Is that said, a good thing? I, yeah. didn't, I didn't know. I, uh, I found out later that when classes were assigned, the professors would go back to the lounge and yell out, who's got Glenn this year? Because I was going to start something. You know. But to understand that God created me in a particular way for a particular ministry, And I may not fit anywhere else, but that's okay. Just be who you're created to be and trust that. Is there a danger in that vernacular? Be true to yourself. Yeah. And what I I guess the more precise meaning that I'd want to be sure I communicated is understand how you're created and who Christ created you to be. How God uniquely made you. Yes, yes. And and, and trust that. Trust it. Because, you know, when you're growing up, unique usually means weird. And the thing is to fit in. And it happens even among ministries. And, you know, you and I could sit, we could sit in a restaurant and we could name the denominations of the pastors who walked in just by their dress, their manner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we wouldn't their, be far wrong. Their eyeglasses. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You're right. 
I remember when I was in college, we had InterVarsity and in those days, Crusade for Christ, now called Crew. Mm-hmm. We had, what was the other one? Navigators. Fair, yeah. And you could tell immediately That's right. which one they were, you know. <laughs> and uh, our time, the, the IV guys all had beards and were looking like Francis Schaefer. <laughs> and the Crusade guys were all sort of Madras golfers, yeah, you know, yeah, kind of yeah. SMU yuppies. And then the Navigators were looked like they were headed to the military. And there is an affinity there that we're comfortable right. in that affinity, which I don't think is all bad. What would you like your epitaph to say? He showed up. You know, if 98% of success is showing up, all right, he showed up. <laughs> <laughs> well, now that we've gone through our 10 questions, we want to segue into a book that you have right there under your hand, your mm-hmm. phone, Coffee with Mom. I know a little bit about the story of this, but right. it'd be better for our folks to hear you tell the story than me tell the story. But you moved your mother from Huntsville, Alabama, up to Middle Tennessee so mm-hmm. you could care for her. Your dad passed away when? Passed away in 2010. 2010. You're the oldest of two boys. Uh-huh. So it fell to the elder son. That's right. To care for mom. And she's a colorful character. That's one way to describe her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, my mom and dad were children of the Depression. Dad left a dirt farm in Smith County, Mississippi, joined the Air Force, and through a series of business adventures, entrepreneur, great American story, he broke the poverty cycle in our family. And mom was right there with him. She is the strength of the family. Dad was creative out there doing everything, and she was the one who anchored the home. And mom is strong as ammonia. We used to tease her that she couldn't be in the movie Steel Magnolias because she didn't have any magnolia. (laughs) 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 You know, it was just just steel. (laughs) But, you know. Was that raising two boys? Was it post-depression or just who she is? Is who she is. Her mom died of breast cancer when my mom was 12. And she instantly became the mother figure for her three little sisters. And it was weird when all the girls. four of yeah, all girls, when the four of them would get together, they would go back into that old pattern. Defer to her. Yeah, they would defer to her. And all of the resentment that normally happens to a daughter to a mom and all of that growing up stuff went to my mom. So the death of your grandma actually kind of reinforced, okay, I got to step up now. That's right. And I'm the rule giver and I'm the... She had no teenage years. She was never an adolescent. Interesting. And Is uh, this all in Alabama, by the way? That's all in South Mississippi South where they grew up. Okay. Dad was transferred to Redstone Arsenal when I was five. So Huntsville is the only town that I've known. Mm-hmm. My dad had a heart attack when he was 55 and it became my mom's mission to care for my dad. And she did it by the book. And so when they said cut salt, she took every bit of salt out of his diet. He starts cramping up. (laughs) Of course. So they take him to the doctor and they do the blood work. He comes out and says, John, you don't have any salt, nothing. And my mom said, well, you said no salt. (laughs) Well, he has to have a little bit. No, you said none. I mean, that was just her. But my dad lived 20 years after that heart attack. And the doctor who did the surgery said, I wouldn't give him five when I did the surgery. But mom willed him to stay alive. Mm -hmm. And dad started talking to me going, I'm worried about your mom. And I blew it off as the intensity of caring for him because he was 24-7. And if she missed a bill payment or she forgot Mm -hmm. something, okay, no big deal. She's doing what really matters. Come to find out he was right. And so when he died in 2010... I began to see more and more and more things of that. And we moved her up here 2014. And that was not easy. No. In fact, if you go down 65, you can see two ruts <laughs> still there where I drug her up here. <laughs> but my dad told me, he told me, here the way I want things handled. And my dad had this thing when he was serious, the muscles in his jaw would ripple. That's what I see happen to you. Yeah. And, and he would look at me and go, now, son. Here's what I want done. And it was one, oh. two, three. And, and you uh, took it to heart. And I took it to heart. And, I, compliant. And, and I'm grateful that I had that because I would tell mom, I'm doing exactly what dad told me to do. That's a good defense. Yeah. And she would say, well, he didn't tell me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I used to tease people. I was going to have to have two votes getting to heaven. Jesus is going to say, well done. My dad's going to step back and go, hold on. <laughs> I, got a, I got a few questions I need to ask him. <laughs> 
I thought you were going to say three, and then your mom would wait. Yeah. Oh, say, well. well now, I'm, wait a minute. I'm sure mom is still telling Jesus how rotten I was. So she told me one time, she says, I'm going to stand up one day and just tell everybody in church just what a liar and thief you are. <laughs> and you told her? I said, well, I think they already know it. Yeah. But... You know, you told her, go ahead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. Yeah. <laughs> I'll get out of my job. Right, yeah. <laughs> Well, the book is interesting because you went over how often? Just about every day. Every on morning. my way into the office, I would go in and stop and have coffee with her, and we would have these conversations. It started at Twitter, yes. and you guys would come in and go, your mom didn't say that. <laughs> yes, she did. <laughs> <laughs> and then the book came from that conversation when we realized there are countless numbers of us who are dealing with this. You have a way of deflecting, and I don't mean that is a defensive thing, but a lot of the things she said to you were very hurtful. Right. And she meant them to be. That was the thing. But you have to understand, my mom only respects strength. Okay? If you waffle a little bit, if you go, well, uh, Mom, I'm thinking about that, well, she'll Toast. crush you. She'll crush you. And so when she would tell me that, I would say, I walked in one time, and she looked at me, and I had on blue jeans, and she said, your father and I sacrificed so much to put you through college. And now you look like a field hand. Wow. And I said, no. And I said, Mom, these are really expensive jeans. <laughs> <laughs> these are, these she are, didn't buy it. Yeah, no, 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 she didn't buy it. But, you know, you have to understand that when that role changes, one, it is hard, hard, hard to finally understand that your mom needs your help. Mm. And you've got to step in. And perhaps for many, the adult child task with that doesn't want to do it That's right. and the parent doesn't want it either it's done and i found myself being the parent of a teenager because mom would lie to me really yeah she would tell me uh, she would say don't take my keys because i got to play i got to take the keys no i'll drive to church i'll go to the bank i won't go anywhere else okay well my nephew sends me a picture of my mom and him at the lake house and he's holding my nephew's little boy. She's holding. <laughs> so I show this picture to mom. Go, is this you at the lake house? Yeah. How did you get there? Well, I drove. <laughs> mom, you can't drive to the lake house. Well, it was just there and back. It wasn't a big deal. I said, mom, it's like I'm arguing with a 15-year-old. You can't do that. So finally, an attorney friend of mine says, he said, let me tell you your future. He said, the plaintiff's attorney will say. <laughs> Did you know your mother should not be driving? And you'll say, yes, I did. Then he comes, takes all your stuff. <laughs> so, <laughs> so you, quote, so, lost her keys. Oh, yeah, now. yeah. I had to lose three sets of keys. Oh, boy. Every time I took a set, is this all you got? Yeah. She'd drive again. Where did this key come from? <laughs> Little dents all in the car where mm. she banged into things. So I got her up to Vanderbilt. Okay, Vanderbilt, as you know. Class hospital, best of the best. These are the people who write the articles. Go through the series of tests. She has Alzheimer's. My mother's sitting there, and she looks at me and goes, who has Alzheimer's? Hmm. I said, well, the doctor says you do, Ma. And she points to the doctor and says, this jackass. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> I said, Ma. She said, you should have seen me what I was doing. I had to walk with my toe touching the heel, I had to stand up and raise my hand, sit down, touch my nose. Nobody does that. He can't do what he told me to do. <laughs> but I asked the doctor, as anyone would, are you sure? Did you know that smell is one of the first things to go in huh. an Alzheimer's patient? I did not. That's why they have so many fires, because they'll put something they on the stove and can't smell it. Wow. He says, your mother can't tell the difference between chocolate and ammonia. Wow. He said, there's no doubt. And then moving her up here and arguing with She never called it the retirement center apartment. Uh, it was the prison. Yeah. Are you taking me back to the prison? Yes, ma'am. <laughs> Your father's going to be so angry when he finds out you put me in prison. <laughs> but you're laughing about it yeah. telling the story, Mike. It still had to hurt. It still had to be difficult. You're doing oh, the right oh, thing. Listen, You're doing listen, it the right way, listen. but she does not understand. You know, Jeannie, my wife, if it had not been for her, I'd have lost it. 
I would have lost it because mom would just beat the dog out of you every time you showed up. It was never thank you. It was never, gosh, I appreciate you doing this. It was, you've stolen my money. You've thrown me in this prison. This is exactly what you've been planning all my life. And part of you wants to say, you know, I just, not everybody does this. Some people just walk off and just, but part of it is you have to remember that's the illness that's talking. But as I would tell people, they say, well, you know, Mike, don't, that's just the illness. I said, yeah, but it looks like my mom. <laughs> <laughs> Last time I looked yeah, at her, it looked, yeah, looked, it looked like just her. like her. <clears throat> so, yeah, you have to have somebody that's kind of helping you debrief that. Give us a couple of samples of some of the – they're funny when you read them on Twitter, <laughs> but I was going, ooh, that had to sting yeah. when he heard it. And as you're looking for that, I want you to elaborate more for folks that are going through similar things because you've kept a sense of humor, Yeah. yet it still hurts. Yeah. The first time I told mom I was taller than her, she said, it doesn't make any difference. She'll sit down for me to slap you. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I would have, you know. <laughs> so she goes to the doctor, and she comes back. She said, the only thing the doctor told me was what I told him. And she said, I might as well go sit there and talk to a parrot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, here's what. Did you sell my house? And at the time, I, hadn't, I said, no, ma'am, I hadn't sold your house. She said, I'm too old to be homeless. I don't want, you're never going back to that home, Mom. It's so yeah, she told me she's going to go to another church because I would pick her up and take her to church. She said, we were going back once. She said, I'm going to have to go to another church. I said, really? Why? She says, I just know too much about this pastor. <laughs> she would tell me, she said, I hope your boys throw you in prison one day. I hope you get this. Wow. So, Listen, there's no promise that you'll get a trophy for doing the right thing other than being able to look in the mirror and say you know I loved her well I did what I had to do I did what she needed me to do and the story I tell people is listen when I showed up in her life at night she was 19 when she had me there was no book there's no instructions and she was scared out of her mind you know, dad was in the Air Force. They, you know, my mom says she knows 250 ways to cook pork and beans. The only thing I asked her, you know, the implied contract between me and her was just do what you think's best. I don't expect you to be perfect. And she wasn't. But I always knew that whatever she did, she was doing for my best. Alzheimer's, as we know from some patients there's times when they're more cognizant they're more aware right. mm -hmm. and other times they're far away did you ever see even innuendos of even though she said something she loved you oh yeah yeah what people don't understand is my mom was scared okay and the way that she would deal with that fear is she would bull rush me with the understanding that he has to win I can't win because if I'm winning, then he can't handle it. So when she would bull rush me and come and say with me, I said, now sit down. Here's what daddy told me to do. Here's what I'm doing. You're safe. You're in a good place. You've got the best medical care that's available in the United States of America. You're fine. And all your finances are good. I could show this to any attorney, any judge, and they'll give me a gold star. Then she would relax a little bit. But that was just the nature of my mom. Did you have to do that somewhat forcefully? Yes. Not mean, right? but right. forcefully. Yeah. And not disrespectfully. You would just, here's the line, and I told you we're not going to cross. But just in, in human nature, if you have a person that's tenacious or high D, sometimes we label them, or in your face, if you don't respond, not rudely, but in kind, right. they're going to bowl over they, you. Yes, exactly and right. There's something about... It's almost like a chest busting, uh -huh. you know. Okay, yeah. he, he can stand his ground. That's exactly right. I'll listen to him. I can relax now because he's got it. He's in control. Kind of funny way about her, but she was like that. Are you wired that way? Probably. The thing about that makes this disease particularly hard is that her best day was yesterday. And so you would go and you would have some kind of moment over coffee. The next day you would come and she would remember you'd been there the day before. 
or she wouldn't remember the stories. At the end of her life, I would have to kind of pump myself up knowing that I was going to have to tell the whole story and carry the whole conversation because she couldn't. All over again. All over, all over. Could she, like many of them, tell stories of 1972? Yeah, and, 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 and one of the funny things is she told a beautiful story. If you had heard it, you would have, oh, man, that's one. The three people that she had in that story didn't live at the same time. And she'd pulled a little bit of that story. And well, a little pastors bit of story. do that every Sunday. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> <We can. laughs> it seems to me, yeah. that's my transition phrase. It yeah. seems to me, I can't be bulldogmatic. That's it right. seems to me, give folks one, two, three of the most important lessons from Coffee with Mom. First lesson, if you're dealing with a parent or somebody who you think you need, you're already too late. You need to start acting. That first thing, wow. go ahead and start acting because you're way behind the curve. Two, this would be a hard thing to do. But the last thing is there is a peace that comes from knowing that you did what love required. You can live with that. Did I make some mistakes? Yeah. Would I do some things? Yeah. But as much as I could, I mm -hmm. love my mom well. Were there some specific things that she said even in this time that Boy, she just communicated, Mike, I love you. It would be through the terms of my dad. Hmm. I walked up to her one time. She was standing outside, and I walked up to her, and she looked and saw her face fall. And I said, what's the matter? She said, I saw you coming, and I thought it was your dad. Hmm. And I said, uh, <laughs> I said, he's a good-looking guy, wasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, and you're a lot like him. And then that was the way. That was close. That, yeah. was, that was as close as she got. Now, you told the story at her funeral, and, boy, the people that came, goodness gracious, yeah. spoke volumes of you and her. But she was quite a musician. Oh, the soundtrack of my life is all the hymns and gospel songs she played all the time. And so while we were getting ready for church or any time she would sit down, she would go in the, in the living room and play. And she could still play. Well, that's what and, you said. And you, she your, never your, lost that. Your AV guy at Brentwood one day snuck in there. She was on the piano yeah, and he I recorded it. I took her to church with me sometime. And if it was a day when nobody was there, I'd walk into the sanctuary and she'd go up and play. And what we noticed was when she would, the people who worked at the church realized what time she would come, and they would come and sit in the sanctuary and worship while she played. She had no idea anybody was in the place. But mom prayed while she was playing. Mm. She, couldn't, she couldn't read the Bible the way that she used to, but when she played, that was her prayer. They came together. Yeah. So I will never hear, pass me not, O gentle Savior, the same way. To watch her sit behind her, and that's what she's playing. Out of the hundreds, if not thousands of songs she knew, she's playing, Pass Me Not, O Gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry. Goodness. You know. We have dear friends in another part of the country that his wife has advanced Alzheimer's, and he has been a consummate husband, just consummate, and took care of her as long as he could until she had to go into a residential program. And he goes every day, and then he realized he needed one day a week off right. and so forth. But she was quite a swimmer in her youth. And all through even her you know, 50s, she loved to swim. And she was terrified of getting in the pool. And the attendants were like dragging an unwilling person. And he would try to coax her and get her in the water. And, she did. and he goes, Michael, I realize I just throw in the water. Again, beyond all this pushing, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. just throw her in, and she comes up, and we start swimming. Yeah. And she has a time for her life. Yeah. She's not going to remember anyway. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> but music. There was a little church that came over, and these a little Baptist church where he lives, and they brought a, a boom box, and it had some hymns on it. She knew every word mm -hmm. to every hymn, and he said it was like my wife was given back to me yeah. through music. And so then, of course, that became a big part of their time together mm -hmm. as they would play hymns and songs that she liked. So interesting how our brains, even though hey, holds on to that, something isn't working right. Any other thing for, I mean, what about time away from a, a difficult parent? How do you not feel guilty and know that you got to put your armor on and, okay, I'm going to be with mom. It's going to be difficult, but yeah. I'm not going to go Thursday, and I'm not going to feel guilty about it. Right. 
The first rule of lifeguarding is don't drown yourself. The last thing you do is get in the water with them. You throw the towel, you reach for them with a pole or something, but you don't get in the water because there'll be two funerals and not just one. So if you're going to love her well and take care of her well and do all the things she needs you to do, then you have to maintain your own sanity and your own health. And that means rest and sleep, exercise, time with Jeannie. Because that's where my life is restored. How, how did uh, she respond to Jeannie when you brought Jeannie with you? She loved Jeannie more than she loved me. <laughs> Jeannie could just tell her stuff, and she just was. Jeannie said, <laughs> "Yeah, you know, we we sit down and eat and say, well, you know, I need to eat my protein and my greens.' Okay, Jeannie said, I really need to be. What, what is this? You know." <laughs> Yeah, Jenny could go in there and go, come on now, we got to go to the doctor, get your clothes on, let's go. Okay. She would do it. And she would do it. Wow. Robman Holman Publishing, Mike Glenn's book, Coffee with Mom, Caring for a Patient with Dementia. You can purchase it online anywhere books are sold. We'll have information in the show notes. But if you're listening to this when you're driving or running or jogging, whatever you're doing, you can go online and find it very easily. Coffee with Mom has a lovely cover. Somebody was clever when they put that cover together. One of Ramsey's guys. Is that right? Yeah, one of his team designed it. Yeah. I'm not going to even tell you what it is. But when you first look at it, you go, oh. And then when you stare at it from here, you go, oh, my word. That's a profound metaphor. Mike Glenn, Coffee with Mom. Thanks for being my friend. Well, thanks thank for, you, Michael. Thanks for Appreciate the Lord it, using you at Brentwood Baptist and your, the Kairos ministry that yeah. you've had for so many years. Countless young men and women, musicians in the Nashville mm-hmm. area. Those of you who don't know Mike's other book, Kairos, talks about using the time God's given us and how he creatively came up with an alternative for people that, quote, work for a living on a weekend. That's right. And it's hard to go to church on Sundays. You're a good man, Mike. Yeah, you too, Michael. You're a good son. You're a good pastor. You're a good neighbor. God bless you. And you too. Thanks for your time. Michael Easley in Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Tycho and Blair Masters.